us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're just delighted to get uh, the opportunity to worship with you. My name is Randy, and uh, I'm the senior minister here at the church, Um, and I just hope that this is the beginning of what will be a very meaningful week uh, for you. Um, would want to invite you all tomorrow night to our uh, Christmas Eve services at 4 o'clock and at 5.30 and hope that uh, that will just add to uh, just the meaning of this week as we celebrate uh, our King's birth. Um. So when my boys were young, they used to play a game with my mother. Uh, They'd play the staring game with Grandma Boltinghouse, the staring game. Um, Rules are as followed. You look away, and on the count of three, one, two, three, you start staring. And the first one to blink or look away or grin loses, right? So you look away, one, two, three. Three. <laughs> Beat you. <ya. laughs> yeah. I'm pretty good at that. Learned from my mother. She wasn't much of an athlete. She's not much of an athlete. She never lettered in sports. But had there been a varsity team in staring, Mary Boltinghouse would have been the MVP every year. Occasionally, my older son, Benjamin, would win. He's a police officer. He's got to keep his cool, keep his focus. Occasionally, he would win. Brandon, our younger, would never win. Never. He's a social worker. He's all heart, you know? Mom would lock eyes, focused with an intense, disciplined, enduring stare, And she just won all the time. I mean, she could keep her pupils fixed. They were like laser beams. You know why she was so gifted? She was an elementary school teacher. I mean, her stare could reduce even the most defiant child into submission. I know this thing by experience. The staring game. Our Advent scripture was taken from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there if you would. The New Testament book of Hebrews. You'll find that on page 1002 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's word to call your own, please avail yourselves to copy and put your name in it and receive it as a gift from the church. And we heard from Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, and specifically these two words which constitute the big idea. It's a two-word big idea this morning. Here it is. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, 
in our vernacular, the word consider means think about it, but no pressure. You know, consider coming over, but only if you want to, no pressure. Consider the chef's special today, but if not, order from the menu, no pressure. Consider, in our vernacular, conveys something optional. Not here. Not in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider comes from a verb that means to lock eyes on, to look at, look on, fixate, concentrate with an intense, focused, disciplined, enduring stare. Consider means to study, to to study for mastery, and to study so that you're absorbed in the subject or the object of the verb. Consider what? Who? Jesus. Consider Jesus. That's the big idea in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Consider Jesus. And that makes sense, especially in this season of Advent, in, a, in an affluent country like ours, and in fact all over the world. Others attempt to distract and redefine the meaning of Christmas. I just read an article in my favorite newspaper that almost made me want to cancel my subscription. The article was titled, How the Movies Invented Christmas. What? Those are fighting words. But I had a hard time disagreeing with the content of the article because the article was asserting how Hollywood has, has secularized the season of Advent and has over the years tutored millions of Americans on how to make Christmas inoffensive. And it cites even the classic Miracle on 34th Street as a big hit precisely because it made no spiritual demands on its viewers. Hmm. Well, our Advent reading in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, supplies ample spiritual demands for our benefit. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, burns off any fog of confusion about the meaning of Christmas by challenging us to focus with laser-like intensity on Jesus. Consider Jesus. Concentrate on Jesus. Fixate on Jesus. And why? Well, these verses give us two reasons. Consider Jesus because of who he is. And secondly, consider Jesus because of who we are. So who he is, who we are. That's where we're going. Today. First, consider Jesus because of who he is. Who is he? Look at verse 1. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle and high priest. Let's talk about those two terms. First, apostle. Do you know, it's here in verse 1, uh, it's the only time in the Bible, that the word apostle is used in reference to Jesus. Most of the time when we see the word apostle, it's in reference to the 12 apostles or, or uh, the apostle 
Paul. Here we read of the apostle Jesus. So we better find out what that word apostle means. Well, literally it means one who is sent. One who is sent. That's what the word apostle means. Uh, John 6.29 talks to us about this. When Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. There's that idea. And then in John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Apostle, one who is sent. Hebrews 3 asserts Jesus as the prime apostle, the first and foremost apostle. Christ's apostleship constitutes the headwaters of all other apostleships before or after him. Christ's apostleship means that he was sent by his Father from heaven. His apostleship implies his deity. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. So this world is not all there is. I read another article in the same issue that made me keep my subscription. It was about an astronomer who's a Christian. And he takes issue with those who see a conflict between faith and science. Here's how he put it. To a scientist who's a believer, I look at the universe and I say, what's going on? Whether they're tragedies like the death of a loved one or miracles like the birth of a loved one. There are things that make you say, I'm experiencing something that's more than physical things can explain. Where did this come from? Or maybe it's just something as simple as, I exist. Why do I exist? Why does anything exist? Why does existence itself exist? And facing su such questions, because I'm a scientist, I look for a hypothesis. And it comes in the form of this assumption. Let's assume that there's a God that's outside nature who is responsible for the existence of the universe. Now when I start with that assumption, now does the universe make sense? Or does the universe make more sense if I assume it's all done by random chance? If I assume Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Am I able to see things I couldn't see before? Am I able to understand things I couldn't understand before? Is that, is that a hypothesis that works? And, and to me, this astronomer who is a believer says, yes. Yes, Jesus is the prime apostle sent by his father in the heavenly realms to show us capital T truth and ultimate reality, real reality. And I was content to just leave the point just at that when, you know, about four hours ago, I read in this morning's New York Times a fascinating article um, that involved an interview by a skeptical journalist. The article was titled, Professor, 
was Jesus really born to a virgin? And the interview was with philosopher William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is a committed Christian, and he has one of the most brilliant minds. Uh, he teaches philosophy. He teaches in the field of apologetics. Apologetics concerns uh, defending the Christian faith and explaining why we believe what we believe. And it was a fascinating article about this interview uh, between a journalist uh, Nicholas Kristof and William Lane Craig. And Kristoff um, queried William Lane Craig about the virgin birth. Did it really happen? And, and William Lane Craig said, you know, when I was a non-Christian, I used to struggle with this too. But then it occurred to me, for a God who could create the entire universe, making a woman pregnant wasn't that big of a deal. Given the existence of a creator and a designer of the universe for which we have good evidence, an occasional miracle is child's play. And then Nicholas uh, queries William Lane Craig on, on science and faith. He says, well, yeah, but what about the incompatibility of science and faith? And William Lane Craig responds courteously and directly. He says, look, I champion a reasonable faith that seeks to provide a comprehensive worldview that takes into account the best evidence of the sciences and history and philosophy and logic and mathematics and some of the arguments for God's existence that I've defended, such as the arguments from the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe, appeal to the best evidence of contemporary science. And then Craig said this, I get the impression, Nick, that you think science is somehow incompatible with beliefs in miracles. If so, you need to give an argument to support your conclusion. <laughs> My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. There's this world and there's another world. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, consider Jesus the apostle. The writer is claiming that Jesus existed outside this universe and is responsible for the existence of this universe and then has entered this universe. He put on flesh as prime apostle to lead us to God. Apostle. But there's another term to describe Jesus in verse 1. Do you see? Apostle and high priest. High priest. So whereas apostle is a heaven to earth term teaching us about Jesus' deity, high priest is an earth to heaven term teaching us about Jesus' humanity. See, the word priest means representative or go-between. And according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, just glance up in the previous chapter there in your Bible. Hebrews 2, 14 says that this Jesus shared in flesh and blood. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, this Jesus was made like us in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. This high priest was tempted in every way. This high priest suffered. This high priest is able 
to help us. And then Hebrews 3 makes this amazing claim. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, to us 21st century Americans, that may not mean much, but to the first century Hebrew audience, that's a huge claim. I mean, in our series over the book of Exodus thus far uh, this semester, we've learned much about Judaism's most revered leader. We've learned how God allowed Moses' birth while Pharaoh was murdering infants. God chose Moses at the age of 80 to lead Israel from slavery. God, through Moses, worked signs and wonders. With his staff, he parted the Red Sea and, and, and struck a rock to quench Israel's thirst in the wilderness. God spoke directly to Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5 says Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Well, that's a reference to Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, which says this, When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Oh, Moses. Esteemed leader in Judaism. Moses, liberator, leader, lawgiver, historian, psalmist. Moses gives us the first psalm in scripture, Exodus 15. Next Sunday, we'll be studying from Psalm 90, which is a song Moses wrote. An amazing, amazing person who is great. And Jesus is greater. For while Moses was a faithful servant, Jesus is the faithful son. While Moses was in the house, Jesus is over the house. While Moses was part of the house, Jesus is the architect and builder of the house. While Moses loved God, Jesus is God. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, it says that the Lord who motivated Moses to reject Egypt was Christ. And in Jude, verse 5, it says that Israel's redeemer out of Egypt was Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says that the rock in the wilderness was Christ. Yes, Moses was faithful. And Moses' life served as a spiritual telescope intended to magnify someone greater and that's why verse 5 says, Now Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. And Jesus is the testimony spoken later. Jesus himself declared in John 6, 32, It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven. God the Father gave you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. To which the people said, well, give us this bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread. Yahweh, the bread. 
If you, if you don't believe that God exists, and if you just think that this world is all there is, then, then you have to invent your own answers to ultimate questions like, you know, why is there something and not nothing? And, and who am I? And what's the purpose to, of life? And, and what's my destiny? And you can't repress those questions. You can't. You can make yourself busy. You can go from A to B to C to D. You can, you can busy yourself, but, but your mind will eventually settle down, and those questions will not go away. You can't repress the big picture questions of life. In Jane Wagner's play, The Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe, the character Lily says, I worry where tonight fits in the cosmic scheme of things. And then she adds, I worry there is no cosmic scheme to things. And Christmas says there is. Christmas says that God made us as his image to reflect his glory. We have sinned and fallen short of that glory. But God the Son, who is the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.1, God the Son was sent by God the Father as prime apostle and high priest to come in love to restore the creation. And through faith in him, we discover that our lives do, in fact, fit into the cosmic scheme of things. He recreates in us a love for himself and restores us to fellowship with himself. He transforms self-centered, self-directed love into love of our neighbors and our enemies. So consider Jesus because of who he is. But these verses also tell us to consider Jesus because of who we are. Verse one, therefore, holy brothers and sisters. So, so these verses were first addressed to believers. Now, I can understand why unbelievers would be challenged to consider Jesus, but why believers? Well, think. Don't you ever feel beaten down? Don't you ever feel emotionally exhausted? Have others shamed you for your commitment to Christ? And would it be easier to just go along? You know, some days, defecting from grace seems easier than enduring disgrace. And in Hebrews chapter 3, these, these holy brothers and sisters were considering going back to rules-based, legalistic, law-keeping systems of salvation. They were considering going back to a, to a do-more, try-harder religious life. Law-keeping. Law-keeping. What do I mean by law-keeping? Law-keeping is anything that I do to try to earn salvation or to earn my worth in the sight of God. Law-keeping law depends on my efforts and, and, and my initiative. And, and as such, law-keeping is all about lists and, and, and steps and advice. And even people who aren't religious succumb to law-keeping. I mean, Christmas time comes with a law of its own. 
I'm thinking of the law of Pinterest. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Thou shalt have brand new adorable matching clothes for your kids for the Christmas letter photo or you're a failure as a human being. There's the law of the Christmas letter, which is a hard copy version of the law of social media, which says that you have to hide all of your unhappiness and imperfection. There's the law of manhood, which says that you should earn enough to buy your kids all the gifts they want. And then there's the law of motherhood, which says that you have to wrap all of those presents perfectly, presents that cost at least as much as what your sister-in-law will spend on her kids, and then you have to make homemade holiday cookies like what you think your mother used to do when, in fact, she bought them at Sam's. And then, (laughs) just saying, just saying, and then then you have to spend quality time with each child or you're no better than Miss Hannigan in the movie (laughs) Annie. And, and then there's the law that, that you know, we pastor types are guilty of laying down, a law that tells people that they should have several, many, holy and meaningful spiritual experiences while doing all of the above, plus cooking up a Norman Rockwell Christmas. Oh, and don't forget Tiny Tim and the less fortunate. No wonder we're exhausted. And sadly... When it comes to Christmas, our world, and and frankly, sometimes the church world, does exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous tells people not to do. They should all over people. And none of these are necessarily bad things, but they don't deal with the heart of the issue. And many churches have become content with creating well-behaved constituents instead of forgiven children of God. And, And to many churches, behavior modification is more important than creating a community of Christ saturated love. And to this, Hebrews 3 says, consider Jesus. Why? Well, because through faith, apart from works, we belong to his family. And look at verse 1 again. We're not just brothers and sisters. We're holy brothers and sisters. Holy together. The, the, the glory of the gospel is not that God just takes our sin away from us. But he gives us the holiness of the Holy One. It's, it's, it's the original Christmas gift exchange. My sin for his holiness. God takes my putrid insurrection and puts it on Christ. And in turn, he gives me the robe of his righteousness. By faith. For free. And once you understand this, it frees you from the burden of legalism. Oh, legalism is about being more concerned with your obedience than you are with the obedient work of Christ. Legalists are those who'd rather focus on doing more and trying harder instead of 
at considering and focusing on what's been done for them. Legalism turns away from a message of grace and, and twists it into a list of rules that determine who's in and who's out. Listen, the gospel declares that God has given through Christ his perfect righteousness. You cannot do any more to make God love you. The incarnation is not just an abstract doctrinal principle. It's a physical, historical reality. It's material. God took on material flesh and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. So consider Jesus. Don't consider how weak or strong your faith is. Don't consider your emotional temperature. Don't consider the level of your heart's passion for God. My heart for God has changed a dozen times since I woke up this morning. Consider Jesus. Fixate on him. Concentrate all your powers on him as the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets were pointing. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England in the last century. To me, he explains very well what it means to consider Jesus. He wrote, we can put it this way. The one who has faith is the one who is no longer looking at himself or to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not even look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and rests on that alone. He has ceased to say, ah, yes, I used to commit terrible sins, but I've done this and I've done that. He stopped saying that. If he goes on saying that, he, he doesn't have faith. Faith speaks in an entirely different manner and makes a person say, yes, I've sinned grievously, and yes, I have lived a life of sin, yet I know I am a child of God because I am not resting on any righteousness of my own. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ, and God has put that to my account. That's what it means to consider Jesus. And that's the best Christmas gift we can ever receive. So one of those movies that was said to have invented Christmas is a movie called A Christmas Story. Ah, you all have seen it. If you haven't, it's 30 years old. It's on you now. Here's the end. You know, Ralphie wants a, a Red Ryder BB gun throughout the whole movie. And, and, you know, at every scene he's told it's too dangerous. He can't be trusted with such a gift. He's not mature enough yet. His mother, his teacher, even Santa Claus, I'll tell him. What do they say? You'll shoot your eye out. That's right. But Ralphie never asks his father. He's afraid of his father. He views his father as harsh and hard. But this fear 
evaporates when at the end of the movie, Ralphie's father surprises him with the gift no one else would trust him with. With fatherly pride, he gives Ralphie a Red Ryder BB gun. What in the world does that have to do with Hebrews 3? Glad you asked. So Christmas is the celebration of God gifting his son to the world. God, whom we often view as harsh and hard, he gives us a gift that we never even thought to ask him for. Reconciliation and freedom. And this gift comes for free. It's a gift. We receive it by faith. Some are afraid of what we'll do with such a gift. Surely we need some rules. Are we mature enough to be free? Are we responsible enough? Will we shoot our eyes out? Well, we might. Ralphie almost does. But like his father, our father wants us to have this gift. And it's his joy. It's his joy to give it to us. Christmas is about the best father, the father on high, who gives his children a gift no one would trust them with. The gift of being a holy brother and sister. The gift of being God's house. You are the holy house of God in Christ. Christ, who is the prime apostle, the merciful high priest, the faithful son, the eternal architect. Oh, church family, consider him. Consider Jesus. Amen?